0: This is Brass Tactics, policy and strategy for the people, not the politics. Welcome back to Brass Tactics. As usual, I am still Joe McGiffin, and today with me, I still have one Peter Mitchell. But as a special, new, unique opportunity, we have a very rare appearance of a special guest. Today with us is Charlie Feint. He is not only the chair for the study of special operations at the Modern War Institute at West Point, and he's also the owner and founder of the Havoc Journal, the voice of the veteran community. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Pete, hi. John, Pete,
1: hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of brass tactics. Really looking forward to the discussion tonight.
0: Thanks, that puts you in rare company with my mother and occasionally Pete's wife.
1: Good good company, good company to keep.
0: Glad to be growing a community. So, tonight's topic, we were going to talk about a really common acronym. So, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, or who have been with us, so far, Pete and I have mostly argued about the history of war, the philosophy of military theory, and how we look at war and some of those big forces that move political science. And and this is going to be another one of those episodes. We're laying some uh, framework right here. This is what a week and some change since Tucker Carlson's Putin interview, which is a really cool one, which we're excited to get into. But some of these big mechanics, I think are really important to understand before you start trying to piecemeal or really delve into specific topics like this. And today's topic, called DIMEFIL, called also Midlife. It's it's an acronym that's aimed to help you understand how states, specifically how the United States in particular, because I, I think that it originated with us, as, as do most things that people have issue with, view their capabilities in terms of foreign policy. And so this original acronym stands for, the D is diplomatic, I is information, M is military, E is economic. And that was the original one was dime. And then later on, uh, mostly during the prolonged counterinsurgency conflict of the war in Afghanistan, we added a few other ones that are were generally associated with state building, but that doesn't imply that they're limited there. And that was financial, which I'm going to let Charlie explain how that's different than economic, because I personally still don't see a difference. Charlie, the extent of my capabilities with either economics or finances, I make sure there's more coming in from the paycheck than going out each month, and that's about what I can manage.
1: You're doing better than most governments around the world if you're doing that job. Well done. <laughs>
0: and so, yeah, uh, and that leaves I for information, and the last one is L for law enforcement. Charlie has spent the better part of his. Academic career with a heavy focus in this sort of arena of the foreign policy community with these basic building blocks. So, Charlie, does does this acronym work out, or is this something that is just setting up limitations for how we can re envision foreign policy capabilities?
1: So, Joe, I'm thrilled that you and Pete have asked me to discuss this. This is something I've been interested in for a very long time. As I mentioned before the show, the, the article that we're talking about right now, my my. Midlife article, something I wrote about 12 years ago. I was first exposed to the dime construct when I was in graduate school, and I thought it was useful at the time. And if any of your listeners or or you fact check right now, you can Google "dime" and President Obama, "dime" and President Trump, "dime" and just about anybody, and you'll see them refer to it all the time. They they were usually in the context of we have to use all of our instruments of national power the diplomatic information military and economic and they normally say that right before they default on the military and economics it's really just like it's like hey we got to use all the instruments of national power and we're sending the marines that's normally how it works something like that so just backing up a little bit on on dime fill the second i stands for intelligence so it's information in dime and it's information and intelligence in dime fill i thought Building out the fill part to DIME was useful because there's there's far more, DIME is too simplistic if you really study strategy or if you study international relations or politics. But I think that that, that was insufficient also, which is why someone other than me came up with midlife. I, I like that acronym better than DIME-FILL. I think it's it, midlife is, is less cumbersome. But I think that we overlooked a number of other instruments that, that can be and are used and limiting ourselves to dime filler or dime in particular overlooks a whole bunch of
2: other things. It's, this is an imperializing concept. I was, again, I was exposed to this the first time in grad school, just like Dr. Feint was, but just a, a year or so ago, I was watching a lecture at the uh, Maria Theresa Academy in Vienna, Austria, and the Austrian army colonel starts discussing the war in ukraine the russo-ukrainian war and he says we need to look at this through the appropriate lenses of national power in german but then he flips to a side a, a new slide that says in english dime diplomatic informational military economic and then in german is briefing this slide which he clearly got from some american officer or whatever just translating it for his audience like this is the way things are right this is the way it's supposed to be done correctly this is the standard that was that blew me away because it's just like there's no it's shocking to me because like there was no independent twist on it there was no austrian riff on dime. no we're just going to take dime the way that the americans say it is and we're going to accept it and then look at the war through that lens
1: i mean we took mission command basically from them so i guess that's just fair play for that they they borrowed dime from us so it's all good so i think it's very
2: <laughs> that was the north that was the northern germans
1: charlie <laughs> not, the, not the southern germans right wait there's a difference hey so
2: they were neutral during the war. Right, they were neutral. Right.
1: So I think I think dime is useful. I think dime, dime, dime fill midlife, however we want to look at it, I think there's utility in that. I think a lot of, the, like a lot of things though, we get overly focused on it and neglect everything else that could go into it. Especially when people pay lip service to it, like I mentioned earlier, I, I was not really joking when I was joking about how we talk about dime, dime fill before we fall back on me, the military the economic. But I think it's useful to get people thinking about it. It's Certainly useful for me when, when I was first starting out, and Pete, maybe same for you, when I was first exposed to it. I was like, "Oh, wow, this is really great."
2: When you start unpacking it, you, you start to find limitations. So a couple of episodes ago, uh, Joe and I discussed the the evolution of U.S. Army doctrine all the way up through the 1970s and 80s. Doctor Fan, could you enlighten us about where? time Phil midlife kind of comes from when does it first come up on the scene or do you know like the roots of the of its conception or its broad acceptance
1: yeah so i was actually looking this up before we went on the show was like i bet someone's going to ask me about this so this has been a a thing in international relations theory for a a long time so i don't know when it first started at least at least four presidencies ago because in my article that i wrote as how far i was able to go back so it's been around quite a while And any framing is is reductive, but I think it's necessary, especially when you look at strategy and all the things that a nation state, especially one as powerful as America can do, all the levers we can pull, we've got to frame that and explain it in a way that it's digestible. Especially when all three of us, if we just say, here is everything you need to think of, because you all have that background and ability, it'll blow their minds, and it'll shut down and they'll be convulsing on the floor and never learn anything. So I think we can start them with something like this, like, okay, I I understand dime, now i can move into this now i can move into this and eventually they can become like pete and and uh, i noticed the humble brag there pete of of how you were uh, going back and forth between german and english in this thing uh, very well done, no, well, no. done. <laughs> well done
0: pinkies out y'all pinkies out so charlie on the on the note of understanding dime i i don't want to run the risk of Not making this as transparent as possible for those of our listeners who are outside of the community of knowing. So maybe we could just quickly unpack. I know I listed them, but maybe we could just unpack what we mean by elements of national power and and how these help to frame.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to skip straight to midlife, which is my interpretation of the evolution of dime dime fill. And again, I didn't come up with midlife; someone else did. I don't know who to credit for it. I'm just saying that it wasn't me, but I did put some original thought into what I think are the most significant uh, elements of organizational influences is how I refer to them. And I know we're going to talk about non-state actors here shortly, but specifically we have the military, which is pretty standard. I think everyone intuitively understands what the military is. Information is is not much different than dime, except to emphasize that it works both ways. You have stuff you want to protect and stuff you want to get diplomatic, no change there legal is use is, is is a lot of people refer to this as lawfare you see this going on right now with hamas and israel in terms of sanctions embargoes boycotts those types of things go ahead
0: that's kind of famously associated a little bit with china as well right with the island buildings in the south china seas and and generally poking poking at conventional borders
1: well i don't think it has legal at all i think that that it proves the point that i was bringing up earlier about the only things that matter in this whole process are military and economic because we've we've threatened all kind of legal action against china they they steal our ip they, co- they copy all our things and and we do little to nothing about it the only thing that does work against ultimately against anybody but especially large powers like china are the closer coercive, coercive elements of a military and economic that doesn't mean everything else is useless in, in competition, a lot of these things are very useful. But when conflict kicks off, these are all the things that we should be doing and a lot of them that we aren't. And that brings us to the next element, identity. And when I wrote this, identity was not nearly as much as, as important as it was right now, it's not nearly as talked about. But when we look at identity, we're talking about race, religion, ethnicity, gender, political party, ideology, things that you choose for yourself or society imposes at you that that can either bring together individuals or set them apart for for whatever reason. And I think as America, we do a poor job of that when we export it to other nations. We do a, a poor job of tapping into identity as a weapon for ourselves. Financial, Joe, you asked about the difference between financial and economic. And financial, it, it, the way I explain it, it refers specifically to the monetary system. Okay, we, we can't have an economy if we don't have money. But finance I think is important enough to have its own category exclusive of economic. And I'm thinking back when when I was in JSOC and one of the ways that we would get after the bad guys is have this financial task force, these, these super smart people that could track down the money, follow the money to get after the bad guys. And we could see now, like when Russia went into Ukraine, one of the things that we did was attack them financially. And the economic is simply the medium of exchange for goods and services. So that's the macro level compared to, to finance. So that's that's in a nutshell, that's midlife.
0: Okay, yeah, well, I think that's that's a great summary. So it's a way to frame the different ways states wield power or influence in order, in order to get after something they want in the international community, right, wrong, or indifferent.
1: Right, and not just states, anybody can do that. Anybody could do these. And I, I know, I imagine we're probably gonna get into a discussion about non-state actors here. Probably right
0: now. Uh, I mean, especially reading your article and also just reflecting on it, it's the non-state actors that really drive that identity realization in a way I think that wasn't really seen before. Because when... When you foreign policy, well, IR, international relations or the study of political science in general was taking off in the mid to late 20th century, it was all focused around state versus state. And it stayed like that until non-state actors started making significant waves in the geopolitical realm.
2: Is it because then be- non-state actors, because of their relatively weaker economies and militaries, have to rely on other levers of dime fill? in order to make up the gap?
1: I think that's a great question, Pete, and a great observation. I also think that it's easier for non-state actors to do it now, but certainly they were doing it in the past. Uh, was it Gravillo-Princep? Uh, I mean, certainly we, we've got examples of, of non-state actors exercising all type of, of power in the past, but in, in the past, you probably didn't have many entertainers that were billionaires. You probably didn't have the, the type of mass communication that, that we do now that ability to influence directly and indirectly. So I think it's easier. That's why we're seeing it so much now. It's easier to travel, it's easier to talk to people, it's easier to make and send and use money. So I think we've had it in the past, it's just more now because it's easier.
0: The state's monopoly
2: on violence is shrinking due to the post-modern information era.
0: So you say non-state actor. The first place I go is the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden.
2: Well, Taliban's definitely a state actor right now, Joe.
0: Yeah, well, but when these things are, these things originate largely <laughs> in in our attempts to rationalize, understand, and prepare to defend against a potential another future threat like what happened on 9-11, right? Like what kicked off the war on terror. It technically not a war that we declared, but it was war, the war on drugs was declared against narcotics, right? What intended target was the cartels. The war on terror was very explicitly targeted at a non-state actor community that we attempted to oust and then build a state. And so I think a lot of the books... Well, time out, though. Time out, time out, time
2: out. You're making it sound like the war on terror was a war against just Afghanistan.
0: No, it was It was a war against a non-state actor. We completely... No, it wasn't. It was a
2: war against a concept. Is a word, it's a concept, just like the war on drugs. It's something that It was
0: named after a concept, but unlike the war on drugs, we did not go and invade Nicaragua. We did not go into Costa Rica, and we have not tried to state build in Colombia or Venezuela.
1: Not yet.
0: Pause. Pause. So, I don't think I'm going to be the only one out there who assumed that that's what you mean by non state actor. But I feel like we I feel like we just vaguely referenced Taylor Swift in a in a roundabout way there. So Taylor Swift as a non state actor?
2: Sure. So you... It all comes back to the
0: Swifties'
2: notorious non state actors.
0: Well,
1: since you brought since you brought
0: up Tay Tay, so like this, this non state actor category, we should we should probably demystify too, because my favorite subject. Once you put once you put Taylor Swift right next to ISIS, then you, you also got to throw in a Walmart.
2: Lord, that's going to sound fun out of context.
0: I'm probably going to take that soundbite and Please. put it as the overall advertisement for our thing on Spotify. <laughs> so that when people go and look at Brass Tactics and they click the preview button, all they hear is me comparing Taylor Swift to Isis and Walmart.
1: Well, I do have an article coming out. Uh, talk, And the headline involves uh, Taylor Swift and Hamas and the connection between the two of them. Uh, spoiler alert: There is no connection other than a click. Charlie,
2: click I play. expected I, I better of, of
1: you. Yeah, I that. know, I know, I, I know.
2: Number five, will shock you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> indeed, a listicle. Top five reasons why Taylor Swift is just as bad as Samas. But I, I think, I think that's an important, an important uh, point you made, Joe. And maybe it's a point for you know uh, a cocktail conversation. But th- there's so much more. That, okay. Cocktail conversation. There's so much more to non-state actors than just terrorist groups. I I also opine that most major terrorist groups, although we consider them non-state actors, are actually arms of a state. So, so Pete was talking about the Taliban and it, their most capable element, the Haqqani network, was a veritable arm of of ISI, the Pakistan in, intelligence service, and that's not only Charlie Faint. If we, if we Google veritable arm of ISI and, and Haqqani Network, you can see who said that originally. So you got, you got Taliban who's an arm of, of Pakistan, you got Hamas, is arm of Iran, and, and, and the list goes on and on. So in my opinion, most major terrorist groups are in fact state actors. They're acting on behalf of the state, they're acting on the direction of the state, they're giving support from the state. Non-state actors, and especially in today's world, are more like your Taylor Swift's. Jeff Bezos, people that are not, or at least we assume are not, under the direct control of a government. And I think Taylor Swift is an excellent example, and I'd like to unpack that more if you guys are down.
2: Oh, always. Very topical.
1: (laughs) I have a lot of respect for her. I think she's example number one of why proof of my theory, of my hypothesis about midlife. Uh, Tay-Tay is number one on the list. So a little little background on this. I have been a fan of Taylor Swift for a long time. I'm not talking rabid Swifty fan, but I do like Taylor Swift. I think she's a very talented musician. Ours, her, the video that she did for the, the song, Ours, really struck a chord with me. Uh, the the person, her love interest in that video was a 101st Airborne Division Soldier. I was in the 101st. I was stationed for Campbell, etc. I also have a daughter who's turning 16 in two days who is all things Taylor Swift. So I went and watched the harris tour movie because there's no way i can afford to go to the tour myself and i think that she's a fantastic example of what someone with a huge following and a huge budget can do and get done and influence
0: so how do you leverage that
2: well you have a militant arm of the swifties yeah,
0: well, right so <laughs> and you have
2: informational power well, she's, she's big in japan she, so that's she diplomatic.
0: is she is she is not in any any meaningful sense, beholden to a state, right? So does she just go call dibs on an island and then just have her people flock there? Or is there, is there potential to leverage? So she's got a lot of influence. So what? How, how do you actualize that?
1: So, for example, I, re- I read an article this morning that Taylor Swift had Kanye West removed from the Super Bowl because they have a beef. And there, we don't need to go into details on it. Anyone who, who understands Taylor Swift knows that the background there. But that's an example, I don't know if it's true or not. I thought I, I laughed, but that's an example of her using the soft power that she's accumulated to coercively force something, that someone else, impose her will on someone else. So when we look at things that someone can do from her position, she could do whatever she wants she could run for office in the united states and she could win office she could be a senator or congressman she could do whatever she wants she maybe she could be president things are crazy right now who knows but and that's one way that she could take the military and uh lever of power and firmly in hand by becoming commander-in-chief or house armed services committee whatever or simply by using her information power and her economic power to say, hey, I think we should do X, Y, Z. For example, if Taylor Swift were to enthusiastically add her voice to the call for a ceasefire in Gaza right now, that is, that is political power that she could influence by her millions upon millions of fans if she want to put money in towards advertising, et cetera, et cetera. So she can
2: use her soft power to have hard power results. Beyond the, yeah, beyond the hypotheticals, I think uh, everyone saw on the news Elon Musk's Starlink internet, uh, you know, the satellite internet connection, and how it's being used not just you know by the Ukrainians, but also by the Russians now is coming out to provide internet to control drones in the battlefield. And this is a private company, a corporation, right? It's having very real battlefield effects.
1: Absolutely. I think it's another example of non-state actors doing things that traditionally state actors have done and probably should still be doing. So why is this private actor controlling the communications for a foreign power that we're propping up to the tune of 120 plus billion dollars? I think we all know the answer why, but that's just another example of maybe a state should be doing that rather than a private citizen.
2: That's like, well, does the state have the capability now? Because now it's starting to raise questions. right? Just like how it relies on SpaceX for, for Lyft, the United States needs Starlink in a way that it cannot provide that capability which is leading to this kind of cyberpunky future where states are becoming beholden to corporations and private entities.
1: Well, even now with technology, think about what we could do as private citizens from our own desks with these 3D printers, with connected to the internet, with Amazon, with, with what you can get off of that. So many people can have such a, an outsized effect
2: just from their own their own basement i've read some some people in a joking way but they're not joking about how the, the front lines in ukraine are actually supplied by aliexpress the chinese company you know the extension of alibaba because you can buy just drone kits from aliexpress for a couple of hundred dollars and put it together on the battlefield and put an explosive on it my facebook has been getting spammed
1: by timu which i hadn't heard of before but i guess it's a cut rate amazon yep. and i was looking through it I was like wow this is some really interesting stuff that's super cheap so if you were looking to outfit a military or even start your own podcast, you
2: could do it for under a hundred bucks. It's so really here, interesting. Here's the thing, Charlie, is this is this similar to Dimefield, how we're moving away from just outside, beyond the military and economic powers, is this a symptom of perhaps the deprofessionalization of warfare, the democratization of warfare, where it's being pulled out of the military's hands? Uh, the military can't even handle it. It's beyond the military's ability. Look at all these
0: things. No, it's it's not. No, are
2: you sure? Because that's what the corporations would want you to think.
0: No, because like like Charlie says, we say dime, right? And spying on people and stuff sort of enables the other things. But this is this is part of why I really don't like this acronym because it also just reinforces how flawed our foreign policy mechanisms are and that's sort of an overtip of the hat to a phenomenal research piece called flawed by design by amy ziegert which categorically breaks down all of the issues we have well all the issues pretty much any democracy is going to have with trying to execute foreign policy but like charlie even said it's the military hasn't suffered from nothing because it always comes back to me it still has the most robust budget and you can't change that overnight which means you probably can't change that because you have four maybe eight years tops if you don't upset enough people everything has a military solution if you try hard enough right or at least that's that's how it seems to be and we've talked about our first episode was supposed to be about the American urge to intervene, but I spent a lot of time on Sun Tzu. But like, this is clearly a theme that we keep revisiting. But I don't, I don't think this is a fracturing of of the military at all. If anything, it's sort of starting to pivot influences to focus on the non kinetic means. And here, I want to segue to not necessarily a competing frame, maybe a supplemental frame, but. I didn't mean to to suggest that there's no way to frame war war or foreign policy to help understand, but Dimefill focuses on assets, as Charlie pointed out. And if you're focusing on the wrong assets, then you're not going to be looking for other assets. Another way of looking at war, interactions, competition, what have you, strategy, hard, soft, and sharp power. Rather than focusing on the assets, these descriptors are focusing on the means that these things are exercising. So like Charlie said, me, we come back to me. Part of why we come back to me, I would argue, is because hard power is always the simplest solution. Pludgeoning somebody with actual military force or economic force is just the easiest go-to button, even if it's not necessarily the best solution. Soft power. Taylor Swift fits cleanly into soft power, even if America has looser control. And for this, Charlie, I don't know if you were ever a gamer back in the day or now, but there was a very popular series of games from Sid Meier's called Civilization. And one of the ways you can win is a cultural victory because people, everybody starts listening to your music and wearing blue jeans and you've won. And then last sharp power, sharp power is kind of a new one to Charlie's point. Like you sit around long enough, somebody who's on the losing side, like we talked about with innovation all the time especially with sean somebody on the losing side is going to find a creative way and this idea of sharp power has only emerged in the in recent years and the idea is that you you've weaponized soft power it's not just this osmotic cultural collaborative pressure that is just naturally attracting people to you or naturally causing changes so that people are more amenable to working with you it's it's going in there and actively messing with somebody's societal norms and standards to which you can it's attacking or or mass brainwashing what's it called social engineering is that is that the fancy term Um, for getting on social media and manipulating people to turn opinions against you it's something that China has been accredited for it's something that's been attributed to Russians the idea of turning turning public opinion in particular against the United States which The United States is kind of hamstrung with this whole sharp power thing because we've got these like pesky ethics and morals and this belief in upholding the freedom of speech and freedom of information. But anyways, I wanted to bring that up too because I think this is a really good thing to talk about in the same vein as midlife and sort of trying to reconcile how how do you account for influences from Taylor Swift as well as from pick any any UN-recognized country around the world.
1: Well, your explanation of sharp power is very interesting. I'm not familiar with that. I've been out of the game for a little while, so that's not surprising. But I wonder if it's redundant. We talk about sharp power being the weaponization of soft power. It's all weaponized. That's why it's there. So I think we have hard power, we have soft power. Sharp power is redundant. It's all sharp because we can use all of it, and we should be using all of it, and all of it's being used against us
0: well charlie if we weren't coming up with new names for things that were already happening then we wouldn't have a community of people with phds that <laughs> that will be my one for this episode well I,
1: I i mean fair point because i i am the guy that's advocating midlife when dime seems to have been serving us just fine for for 100 years pete look like you're about to say something
2: uh no no no, no. that's that was just his midlife. face Yeah, that's my, no, no, no. I'll raise my hand or something like that. So
1: I was thinking when we were talking just a minute ago, when I taught international relations at West Point, one of the things that I like to do was go to the international relations guru, Dave Chappelle, for wisdom and insight. And when I was in Iraq in 2004, it was kind of the high Chappelle show, and I loved Dave Chappelle's sketch.
2: Oh, you're talking about the Black Bush sketch, right? I am talking about
1: Black Bush.
2: Magnific- sanction me
1: with your army. Yes, yes. UN sanction with the army. We don't. We, since all of our mothers are going to listen to this episode, we won't go into the verbiage associated mm-hmm. with walk Welcome, look it up. But I, th- I thought that was an excellent example.
0: I have no clue what we're talking. You're you missing Link. out. You're I'll missing out.
1: We've um, got and, a coalition
2: and, of the willing. <laughs>
1: Africa bombada. Yeah, exactly. That's a, That was such a great skit, but so right on. And it goes it goes back to the point we were making earlier, where ultimately it comes down to military economics. So you've got the United Nations that is making noise in the skit, it's like, hey, uh, I think you should do this, I think you should do that. And President Chappelle, who's in the skit, uh, was basically saying, oh, you should sh- sanction me with your army. Oh, you don't have an army. And then he explained what he thought the UN should do since they don't have an army. But it was is another interesting call. I mean, power is power is power. You you can look at you can look at Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones. Knowledge is great, but power is power, and that's the that's the the hard power that you're talking about. Or Joe, as I learned just now, we we're going to refer to it as sharp power.
0: But going back to midlife, in your estimation, Charlie, to bring these. I really liked what you what you suggested. We refer to them as these elements of organizational influence. Should our foreign policy complex be established to reflect that? So like diplomatic, that Department of State, great. Information and intelligence, is that somewhere between the CIA or the Office of the Director of Intelligence Agency? Is there a disconnect between how we frame foreign policy influences and how we are currently arrayed to conduct foreign policy.
1: I I think so, Joe. I think uh, bureaucracies in general are slow to respond to just about anything, any changes. Look how long it took us to, to deal with the internet and AI is coming on the scene right now and nobody knows what to do. So it takes a long time for this to kick in. And in terms of who should be responsible for what, I think we have organizations in place to handle all these we have a department of justice, we have the state department, we have a military, et cetera. But I think it's changing the mindset and changing the focus. And when we're talking about midlife and changing the focus, we're talking about strategy. Pete, do you remember what BH Liddell Hart said about getting a new idea into a military mind? Are you, are you familiar with that quote?
2: Uh, I believe it was practically impossible to paraphrase. But
1: Yes, so the only thing harder than getting a new idea into a military mind is getting an old idea out. And that's not unique to the military. <laughs> So when we're looking at international relations theory, when we're looking at politics, nobody wants to think about something new. It's super easy to downplay new ideas, especially if you've hinged your career, you wrote your dissertation on the old idea. So at the same time, I fully recognize that a lot of new ideas are really stupid and we should never try them. But I think that if we look at, if we start unpacking the kinds of things, where we've been successful, where we're not, where we need to go for the future, I think it's more in line with midlife or even dime fill than it is with dime i think dime will continue to be used because that's easier to use in a soundbite, and that's fewer acronym letters that a politician has to remember i mean dime is four letters you remember four things you're good so i think that'll stick around but i think if we're serious about winning in the future then we need to expand that window a little bit and we all need to become more like taylor swift
2: because she is clearly killing it right now can we talk really quick about what we were discussing a bit before we started rolling about why we are using different terminology when referring to hard or sharp power. Like, for example, instead of saying, embargoing a nation, we will now sanction that nation, right, or or provide some kind of a penalty for it.
0: Uh, I'll I'll take this one. I don't know, I
2: find the semantics, I find the semantics really fascinating, just because of, Well I think Pete, there Ooh, there may be a
1: right. there okay. may be a, a a simple answer to that. I think an embargo is an act of war. So if we say we're going to embargo if we and someone could fact check me on it although I'm pretty sure I'm correct. So we're going to we're going to we're going to embargo Ooh, Russia. Right. Oh, that's an act of war. If we're going to sanction Russia, oh, that's that's soft power. So I think that, that there might be a deliberate reason why
2: we're not doing that. You're totally correct. So we're not blocking all Russian trade. We're just blocking some assets.
0: Not that either has ever successfully achieved anything.
2: The British embargoed the heck out of Germany in World War One, and they choked the life out of them. Uh, we embargoed We embargoed 100... Cuba. That worked. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of Germans starved to death during the turn of winter in 1917. Embargoes definitely worked They took worked. their missiles and went home.
0: Yeah, and Iran totally stopped working on their nuclear program. Sanctions typically involve. We the, literally
2: gave them their nukes back during was it the Eisenhower administration. No, we we gave, them, we gave them their release? money back.
0: Sanctions typically involve the imposition of economic or political restrictions, while embargoes involve a complete prohibition on trade or other economic activity. oh I see. So there is
2: a distinction. You
0: when you. When you when your list of sanctions gets too long, you just say you've embargoed them.
2: Uh, I like that.
1: Indeed, indeed. Well, Joe, you were asking about civilization. I'm familiar with the game, but and I am a gamer going all the way back to like paper and twenty sided dice, Dungeons and Dragons. So I am very familiar with with Civ. And yeah, you can
0: what was your favorite character? I,
1: I and and oh, in Dungeons and Dragons? Absolutely. So I I I play fifth edition now, and I like the warlocks.
0: Oh, all right,
1: all right. Back in the day, I had a magic user and an illusionist, so and, and a thief and a thief. So, but yeah, I like the warlock character. It has a very uh, H.P. Lovecraft feel to it in fifth edition, so that's my favorite. So, yeah. So with with civilization, yeah, you can win culturally, but you have to not get conquered by someone economically or militarily first. So unless you're stuck on an island somewhere and no one else can get after you, or your military is so big that no one can mess with you, you're not going to survive long enough to win culturally.
0: It's a valid point, and nobody's, nobody's ever won by, for example, everybody listened to Gognum Style for about two months there when that song first came out, but who remembers that now? No, no 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 no
2: no dude k-pop is huge now with the gen with the zoomers and the gen alpha man mcdonald's had their own bts meal a couple yeah. of years ago
0: bts yes and
2: parasite the movie Not... south korea dude they got some powerful soft power
0: but gangnam style is gone it did like none of this last a uh, lasting impact the most bts has done is reinvigorated nsync to to launch their their reunion tour.
2: It's like waves cresting on a beach, Joe. Each wave rises higher and higher and pulls away more sand. Gognam style was just the first. Soon the Koreans will conquer us culturally.
0: Cultural power definitely has potential. It's not as easy to leverage as some other powers. Like I don't I'm excited to read Charlie's upcoming article, but I I don't see Taylor Swift standing on top of Castle Grayskull transforming and then smiting hamas or or what have you right
2: no i think i think the best historical example would be Plautus's famous quote conquered we conquer referring to the um the greeks conquering the romans despite losing militarily that the romans wanted to be greek so bad because the romans realized that rome actually had no culture and had nothing to offer and they were just a bunch of jerks and they really wanted what the greeks had to offer and so they all just basically
0: larped as greeks so the Romans are LARPing as Greeks, while the Greeks have the last laugh being conquered and or dead. No, I mean, not dead, but definitely... I'm sure some of them died when the Romans conquested. Elevated slaves,
2: I mean... Oh yeah, a few of them died, a few of them died, yes. And and the, and the smart ones would get enslaved to forcibly tutor young Roman aristocrats. But hey, Greek cultural victory.
0: <laughs> the Mongolians invaded... <laughs> the Song Dynasty, Tang... Tang China, no, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. North, it was North either the Song, song or Tang, Tang Dynasty.
0: I can't remember which. But then they go in and I'm they sure establish their easy. own Chinese dynasty. Does that mean China gets to claim that it has had an unbroken lineage going all the way back? Arguably. Uh, yes.
2: if you, if you listen to Chinese propaganda, you bet your <laughs> rear end they do. They yeah. they totally skip out on all the times they're conquered by the northern tribes.
0: The northern tribe did move in and establish their own Chinese dynasty, though.
2: Yeah, that's why we call it the Qing dynasty, right? Not the Manchurians conquering China and forcing all the Han to wear long pigtails.
0: It was the Yuan dynasty. Yuan
2: Yuan was the Mongols, correct? And then the Qing was later in the 20th in a, a long They conquered the Ming in like the 1600s. Anyways, you can fact check me on that later, Charlie. Yeah, it sounds it sounds pretty accurate.
0: But I mean, like to the point, that cultural power has a lot to say for it whether or not it's it's necessarily tied to a people or potentially a location. Like I'm sure there's implications for Hamas Israel in there somewhere, right? The Middle East has been fought over, especially the area around Jerusalem has been fought over I mean it's in the Bible yeah. and I don't want to embarrass myself any further today, but so there you've had you've had different cultures clashing there forever in hot conflicts and or in just extremely tense scenarios right
1: I think it's a great that's a great example that you're giving Joe because the the folks in Gaza, Hamas, has very limited, very limited economic and military power. They have enough, clearly, uh, to do what they did in October, but they have so much information power going on right now. I, I was down in Philly recently, and I was driving around, and I saw this sign, and, or this billboard, and it said, Free the Oppressed. I assumed it was Army Special Forces recruiting. Man, it wasn't. Oh, it was a. a pro- you gotta let them know
2: they're infringing copyright, sir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it wasn't. I just I made a bad assumption. It wasn't "De Apreso Libre." It was just like "Free the Oppressed." I was like, "Oh, I special forces recruiting." Nope. It was it was a, a pro Palestinian one, and there were several pro Palestinian billboards throughout Philadelphia. Not only that, pro Palestinian graffiti on many of the walls downtown. So they are punching well, well above their weight in some important aspects, especially the, the legal information right now, they're leveraging that, but they would not be able to do what they were doing if they didn't have that military power. If they hadn't launched that attack and and Israel responded the way they did, they wouldn't have all the support right now. So there's a lot going into it, but as we've talked about, it all comes back to the coercive aspects, military and economic. If you don't have economic, although they do try with the boycott, divestment, and sanctions, you're kind of left with the military and from the military,
2: uh, lots of things can grow out in, in a perverse way though, like you were saying, Charlie, the, the Hamas attack against Israel was, was designed then not to inflict damage upon Israel, but to primarily, but to provoke an attack, to feed the information warfare spectrum of look how, look how badly we are being treated. To add some people would call that, some people would call that cry bully behavior.
1: It's like when your little sister runs over to you and smacks you, and then you smack her back, and then she runs and tells mom mm-hmm. and dad. That's that's kind of what, and and people will disagree with this, and that's fine. That's that's one way to look at this issue right now. What what they did, what Hamas did in in Israel, was an atrocity, and it was really shocking to me to see people not only justifying it but celebrating it. But that is uh, that is a further indicator of the mood of the world right now. I remember watching. The recruiting videos that ISIS was putting together, where they're like sawing people off or set them on fire and stuff, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. But that's that's inciting people to join them. It's really interesting how that works out. In, in the context of what we do at West Point in the Modern War Institute in Defense and Strategic Studies, dealing with cadets or or just in general, what this means for for them, and what I'm what I'm thinking is that we we've all heard about the Strategic Corporal. Because of the information age that we're acting, that, that a corporal being kind of the lowest level leader on the battlefield, the decisions that he or she makes has strategic consequences. That's uh, specifically that's that's even more so for the lieutenants. So I think that that young people listening to this podcast and considering brass tactics need to think about how this applies to them because we're talking strategy, but this translates directly to tactics. So I think uh, it might be interesting to have a little discussion about that. What kind of elements of organizational influence do you think that the young leaders in the military are going to need to know right when they get out, besides every Taylor Swift song ever made?
0: From where I sit, Charlie, it's the same value for them would be the same value to, to just the general American populace as well. The, lead, the, the officers, leaders, future leaders more so just because they're so intimately involved in it. Not only the, they're very much in that M, that military and that military is the leading edge and and sometimes also the trailing edge and possibly just the only edge to a lot of what we do with foreign policy like you mentioned in your article it's weird to think about at some point it just became this is the way up there's an earthquake where are the u.s navy hospital ships to support this island country or there's ebola there's domestic turmoil here or there it's it's became it's becoming easy not that i am saying that we should not participate in humanitarian aid missions around the world because that is not what i'm saying it's just kind of interesting that it became the military's responsibility and the the easy way to resolve that is like well we have the military is the biggest the military has the largest budget of the foreign policy and so you know we haven't picked a war in a hot minute, so we might as well make them do something.
1: Well, I think, I think also the military doesn't say no. I, I don't know if you guys were in Iraq or-, or...
0: You can't say no and keep the robust well, budget.
1: That's just not in our culture, it's a culture thing. I remember talking with, with some of my State Department friends when we were in Iraq trying to sort that issue out. And they kept saying, if we had your budget i think one of the comparisons they make is the state department's budget is like less than the budgets for the military bands i have in fact checked that i don't know if it's true but...
0: we have more u.s army banned military occupation category soldiers than the state department has foreign service officers That'd that
1: makes more sense but they would say we, when we'd have these conversations they'd say if we had your budget if you had our budget what you would just fail faster in iraq
0: dang charlie <laughs>
1: part of the problem that they had was they couldn't staff the, the embassy that they had because people would refuse to go so that was that was a problem that and the culture that we had is is we had we had a lesser degree on that because we had to start giving people so many uh, bonuses uh, double double below zone promotions massive uh, retention bonuses financially for soldiers for officers but we would go we would go when we do the job and, and sometimes the State Department they wouldn't. Also, I want to make it clear I have enormous respect for the State Department, but they were wrong about that aspect. It was cultural, not financial.
0: I'm sorry, I had I had lost your original question for a second there, but context. I think that the best thing that these framing tools like dime hard power, soft power, sharp power is to provide context. Know know where you are especially for for those future leaders downrange, right they especially need to know because they they need to know what their left and right limits are as a military capacity and they need to know what the left uh, what the left and right limits are of the other of the other foreign policy assets and people that are down there because if if you cannot figure out how to work like you like to your point like with the state department if you can't figure out how to build synergy with the State Department, with that diplomatic wing, you're just you're just left a little bit more vulnerable. And that context, I think, is equally important for those those at home who they have their preferred news channel and they rely on that news channel not just for what is going on in the world, but to also tell them how to think about what's going on in the world rather than giving them the tools to think about it themselves and and that's that's what i really like about this episode is context your foreign policy has limitations and there's shortcuts for how to think about and how to frame these problems and we have these different resources that everybody's aware of but they don't necessarily see how they click together and 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 I think that's, that's something that midlife, whether or not you agree or disagree with it, like, like I, I originally said, I disagree with it. It, it is providing that valuable service because it might not be the best way, but it's a darn good start to at least help give you that context. You'd need to think about how should I expect our representatives or our government to comport themselves? How? How can we support other democracies? So this ties to Hamas-Israel. This ties to Russia-Ukraine. These ties are very convoluted knots that I don't think we are going to unravel in this. So we will definitely have to say more to follow on future episodes. But yeah, these tools don't solve foreign policy and they don't even provide answers to foreign policy. They provide a context, a starting point, and give us a frame of reference for for trying to think about these extremely complex and difficult issues
1: absolutely i also want to make it clear to our listeners especially the young ones the military is a solution to pretty much everything but it's not always the best one it's not the only one so even when we're out there on the battlefield in a military context whatever we're doing we should be looking at how we pull all these levers to make things better it's not always good to kick somebody's door down we just have them arrested or bribed, or you can influence them through their ideology that might be a far better way to do it and going back to something that, that you all talked about before when you talk about sun tzu the art of winning without fighting maybe we could think of and encourage our young military leaders to to try to win without fighting for a change that would be refreshing
0: a tomato is a fruit but you don't want to put it in a fruit salad though you could the military is fruit, salads, tomato. Indeed. Also,
2: it's the poor workman that blames his tools, right? It's not <laughs> dime-fill, maybe that's necessarily the problem.
0: The, the original one it, for the, for that for that military as a panacea is everything's a hammer if you try hard enough.
1: That's right. That's right. And and you alluded to it earlier, Joe. This is probably subject for a whole other podcast, how the, the military has become the easy button for everything. And yeah, absolutely. We need to use the military for humanitarian missions. You get a whole ribbon for that. Who wouldn't want to go do that? Sign me up. That's one of the ones I didn't get when I was in the Army. But at the same time, there are people who have these missions who should be doing the missions and should be held accountable if they can't do them. So we got the easy button that we keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. One day that button's not going to work or it's not going to work in the way we want. So I hope we can figure out a way not to avoid that.
0: I I think we broke that button already, Charlie. I think I think that episode where we talk about the military as the easy button, that's going to be half of why, where, how, and where to go from here with the recruitment crisis.
1: I I've got ideas on that that we probably need to talk about later too. I I know the problem. I know the solution. Yeah, that's not what we're here to talk about today.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll have to bring you back in a couple weeks after I can together an outline i think i think it's i think it's a very reasonable argument to be made that the military was overused and in some of those overuses it may have not been used appropriately and 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 that plays into part of why the military is struggling with recruitment i don't think it's the only answer because you can also always blame gen z for like everything it's fantastic <laughs>
1: That's the easy button for blaming anything these days. It's kids these days. It's
0: always the kids these days. Well, Charlie, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about?
1: No, I just wanted to to compliment you guys on this show. I know that that you're only like five or six episodes in. I think this is a great thing. First of all, all all the way from the title, Brass Tactics, I I thought that was really clever. I I told my wife tonight, who is also a 10-year Army vet, I, I, she's like, oh, what podcast are you going on? I said Brass Tactics. She's like, yes. So I love that. But more importantly, these types of shows, this type of information operation, if you want to look at it, is so important because this can reach people that that otherwise wouldn't get it or otherwise wouldn't receive it in the way that I know they do, like on the exercise bike or in the classroom or something like that. So thanks for what you guys are doing. Uh, thanks for having me as a guest and good luck with your your subsequent shows.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Charlie. I'm, I'm just waiting for somebody to screw up the outro because that's that's sort of been like a staple hallmark. Uh, I got so your far. outro right
1: here. Let's go drink.
0: There we go. Yay. Yeah.